We are going to be reading from two passages of Scripture tonight to begin the message, and then we'll also be reading from Lord's Day 8, and actually I think we're just going to read from question and answer 25 in Lord's Day 8. That's printed in the bulletin, could also be found on page 869 in the Gray Psalter. Uh, That's Lord's Day 8 from the Heidelberg Catechism. We're going to read God's Word first, though. Um, Actually, I have just one here in the bulletin, but we're going to first read Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and then we'll read from 2 Corinthians, but let's read first from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This is what we read in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, "'Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one.'" Now let's go to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. This is what we read in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And now we're going to read from the Heidelberg Catechism. Just question and answer 25. I'll read the question. We'll read the answer together. The question is this. Since there is but one God, why do you speak of three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. These three distinct persons are one true, eternal God. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You are God. Lord, we confess that the doctrine of the Trinity is truly a marvelous doctrine. It is something that is often difficult to wrap our minds around and maybe even to explain to others, and yet we believe it because this is how you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Father, we know that this is what makes you who you are. This is what makes you our creator and our redeemer and our sanctifier and Lord God we just want to take some time and and ponder this truth tonight and delight in it we ask that you would help us to do that for Jesus sake amen well the doctrine of the trinity is essential to the Christian faith I'm guessing that the average Christian, when asked to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, probably couldn't give a very good answer. Now, you might be able to say, well, I could give a good answer. Well, then you're an above-average Christian. Can we agree on that? This is what's been said about the Trinity, kind of tongue-in-cheek. The tri- not, not kind of, completely tongue-in-cheek. The Trinity is a matter of five properties, four relations... Three persons, two processions, one substance, and no understanding. 
There's certainly some truth to that. That's why it's been said. But there really shouldn't be, at least not among God's people. Yes, there are things of the Trinity that are too wonderful for us to know. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it is essential to our faith. And we should have some level of understanding regarding the Trinity. Because as we'll see in a moment, the Trinity is, is really what sets Christianity apart from other religions which claim to be Christian. And by that, I'm, I'm thinking of something like Mormonism, for instance. Are Mormons Christians? Mormons say they are Christians. And when uh, a Mormon tells you what he believes you might be tempted to think he actually is a Christian. My doctor in Cadillac actually is a Mormon. That is the most interaction that I have with Mormons. But just on the surface, just listening to what he says, just hearing him speak about Jesus, I must confess that it sounds like he is a Christian. And yet when we get down to it, and when we compare their understanding of the Trinity, for instance, the Godhead, with ours, it becomes clear that they are worshiping a different God altogether. Essential to the Christian faith is the doctrine of the Trinity. And so let's just begin tonight by, by articulating the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity can be articulated in seven statements. Seven statements. The first statement is this. There is only one God. There's only one God. Statement two. The Father is God. Statement three. The Son is God. Statement four. The Holy Spirit is God. Let's review. There's one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Statement five. The Father is not the Son. Statement six, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Statement seven, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So there's one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is is not the Father. So next time someone comes up and says, hey, can you explain for me the doctrine of the Trinity? You can just rehearse those seven statements, kind of drop the mic if you're my generation, and go your own way. Anyway, where do we see this in Scripture? Right? We use those seven statements, we pull them out, sounds relatively easy. Where do we see this in Scripture? The Catechism says in question and answer 25 that this is how God has revealed himself in his word. So where does God reveal himself this way in his word? Well, let's work our way through those seven statements again. Statement one, there is only one God. This is what we see in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. We read it together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We see this in Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. Notice it's not we are the Lord. It's I am the Lord. It's singular because there is only one who is the Lord. 
Zechariah 14.9, on that day the Lord will be one, and his name, one. John 10, verse 30, Jesus here is speaking, he says, I and the Father are one. There is only one God. The Bible is not a polytheistic book. It is not a book that tells us about multiple gods. It is a book that tells us about one God, the creator of heaven and earth and the redeemer of his people. Statement two, the Father is God. We see this plain as day in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, where Paul says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. This is seen also in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus taught us to begin our prayer by saying, our Father, who is in heaven. The Father is God. Statement three, the Son is God. The Son is God. Do you remember the story of Jesus walking on the water? We encountered that in our study of Mark's gospel, but yeah, when it takes you three years, it was some time ago that we encountered it. I think I would profess to believe that that is the favorite sermon I preached in our study of Mark's gospel, and, and, and because it was kind of powerful in my own heart, I sort of went into that story, you know, um, I, I was familiar with the story of Jesus walking on the water, but I wasn't really, I didn't really grasp the significance of that story, and then as I studied it that week, I felt like God just sort of opened my eyes to the significance of that story. I had a breakthrough, really, maybe like I've had in more than any text I've ever, ever studied. But, but, but really, the, the, the point of that story of Jesus walking on the water is that this Jesus is God. He is God. The points that I made when we studied that story together were that, that Jesus sees as God sees. And Jesus walks where God walks. In the Old Testament, it is God who walks on the water. And then we talked about how Jesus walks, how God walks. You'll remember that Jesus is walking on the water and he's about to pass by his disciples. And everyone's like, why is Jesus going to walk by his disciples? And then you remember in the Old Testament that it was God who passed by Moses. And it was God who passed by Elijah. And so what we're seeing there is that Jesus, he not only walks where God walks on the water, but he also walks how God walks Passing by his people. And then the next point was that, was that Jesus talks like God talks. You remember Jesus walks on the water. His disciples are afraid. Jesus says, take courage. It is I. Literally in the Greek, take courage. I am. And that's exactly what God said to Moses from the burning bush. He said, I am. And then finally in that sermon, we notice that Jesus does what God does. Jesus calms the storm. He commands the creation. And the whole point of that story was that Jesus is God. He is not inferior to God. No, he is God. God the Son in human flesh. Statement four, the Holy Spirit is God. Jehovah's Witnesses, another distinguishing point with another sort of false imposter religion of Christianity. Jehovah's Witnesses say that the Holy Spirit is not a distinct person, but the Holy Spirit is just, is just the power of God. It is, it, is, it is not God himself. It is not a person of the Trinity. It's, it's sort of like if I blow, 
and you would feel the wind coming out of my mouth, or if you blow, that's, that's sort of what the Jehovah's Witnesses say about the Holy Spirit. It's sort of the, the breath out of God's mouth. It's this power of God that is active in the world. And yet when we turn to Acts chapter 5, and we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we see quite clearly that the Holy Spirit is God. This is what we read in Acts 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, that's verse 3, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it then you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but God. So in verse 3, he says, Ananias, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, he says, Ananias, you have lied to God. It only makes sense if the Holy Spirit is God. Because a person cannot lie to the mere power of God. A person cannot lie to, you know, breath coming out of someone's mouth. The Holy Spirit is God. We see that in Acts 5. Statement 5 uh, is this, the Father is not the Son, right? So statement one, there's one God. Statement two, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. Statement five, the Father is not the Son. A couple weeks ago, we talked about heresies in the early church. One of those heresies was modalism. Modalists taught that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were just three ways or modes by which the one God acted. God then, according to the modalists, is like an actor in a play who plays multiple parts. And in one scene, he's this character, and then the curtain goes down. And in the next scene, he's another character, and the curtain goes down. And in the next scene, he's, he's still another character. And yet, Scripture clearly teaches that that's, that's not how it is. No, the Father and the Son is not one God dressing up as different characters. The Father and the Son are distinct persons. This is why Jesus can pray in the garden, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. This prayer makes no sense if the Father and the Son are the same person. Also, when, when Jesus dies on the cross, you remember what he says, right? Father, uh, it only makes sense if he's, if he's speaking to another distinct being, right? To someone who's not himself. The Father is not the Son, in the same way, it's clear, God the Father did not die on the cross. God the Son died on the cross. The Father is not the Son. Statement six, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. This is clear in Jesus' baptism, where we see both God the Son and God the Spirit in the same scene. That kind of, kind of settles it right there, doesn't it? Hey, here they both are. Kind of have that with them. At night, I just use illustrations that come to me on the fly. I don't do that in the morning, so you never know how they end up. But, um, like, I watch my, 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 my trail camera for deer, and I'm seeing some nice, a nice buck on my trail camera, and then I see another nice buck, and I'm like, is that the same buck, or is that a different buck? And you're trying to, like, measure the times, you know, on your computer. And then, after that, you see both of them in the same picture, and you're like, it's two! Well, the baptism of Jesus. 
We see Jesus. And we see the Holy Spirit. They're both there. Two distinct persons. Statement seven. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. We see this in Acts 2, 32 and 33. Listen closely. Uh, this Jesus God raised up, Peter's speaking, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what, I'll read that again. Acts 2, 33. Being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what we're told there is that the Holy Spirit was, 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 was given to the resurrected and exalted Christ by the Father. So we see that the Holy Spirit is not only distinct from Christ, he's also distinct from the Father. The Father gave the Holy Spirit to Jesus. Three distinct persons. So there's one God. This one God exists in three persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of them is God. And yet the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. Now what I've always found cool is that although the Trinity really comes into focus uh, in the New Testament... Uh, we do see shadows and glimpses of it throughout the Old Testament. For instance, Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image. The observant reader will say, Us? Let us make man? God, God who are you talking to? What we're hearing there, we know it's inner Trinitarian conversation. It's the Father speaking to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. And then throughout the Old Testament, we catch a glimpse of this, this angel of the Lord. And this angel of the Lord is at one and the same time God, and yet it's also clear that he's distinct from God. We see this in Genesis 18 when Abraham is visited by those three men. We see it in Genesis 32 when Jacob wrestles with God at the fort of Jabbok. And we see it again in Joshua 5. When Joshua runs into the commander of the Lord's army, who says to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. That, that angel of the Lord, it's, it's a figure that is, that is at one and the same time God, but also distinct from God. But anyway, this, this is the God revealed to us in Holy Scripture. This is the God who has sent his one and only Son, so that whoever believes on him has eternal life. And therefore, to, to serve a God who doesn't match up with his description, to serve a God who is not at one and the same time, one and three, is to serve a false God. And that brings us to the Mormons. Mormons profess to trust Christ. And Mormons generally get annoyed when people tell them that they aren't Christians. And yet one look at their theology of God, and it's clear that they are not worshiping the same God we are. Yes, they, they, use, they use much of the same terminology, but they don't mean necessarily the same thing we mean when they use it. For instance, Mormons, Mormons will not use the word trinity. But they will, however, use the term 
Godhead, and Christians too sometimes use the term Godhead to describe the Trinity. So, so let's say, you know, we're using the term Godhead now, we mean Trinity by that term, but, but what Mormons believe about the Godhead is not that it consists of one God and three persons, but that it consists of three gods. Three separate gods. This is a quote from the Institute of Religious Research. It says this, In Orthodox Christianity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God, one eternal divine being. Each of the three is in some way personally distinct from the others, but they are inseparably one God. For Mormons, these three are separate divine beings with their own unique histories. In fact, they are three separate gods. Right? So that's what they believe about the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three separate gods. They're polytheists. Now, some of them don't even know what their tradition actually teaches. That's one of the problems you run into. But, but, but Mormon teaching is, is, is polytheistic. Christianity believes that within the Trinity, God the Son and God the Son alone became man and took on human flesh. Mormonism believes that both God the Father and God the Son are physical beings who have human flesh. And Mormons actually teach that God the Father existed physically in another world before the creation of this one. And then after he created this world, or maybe before he created this world, he went on to create the Son and the Spirit. And so according to Mormons, the Son and the Spirit, they are not, not co-eternal with God, but each of them were created by the Father. That would mean they are subordinate to the Father. Now there's a whole bunch of other strange teachings in Mormonism when you really dig into it. And honestly, I'm not sure even all who profess to be Mormons are aware of them. Uh, they actually believe that we become gods as well uh, if we die in Christ. But the fact is, when you really start getting down to the nitty-gritty, Mormons do not worship the God revealed on the pages of Scripture. And therefore, they do not worship the same God as we do. And that's why we say their religion is false. Think about it this way. You, uh, you say, you say you're, you're talking about a man named Steve. And your friend says, yeah, I know Steve. He's six foot two. Probably 270 pounds, was a real good basketball player in high school, dark hair, big beard, and you're like, no, no, that's not Steve. Steve's 5'10". Steve couldn't jump more than two inches off the ground. He doesn't have an athletic bone in his body. Right? He still can't grow a beard. That ain't Steve. We're talking about a different Steve. Well, that's kind of where we're at with Jesus, right? Mormons profess to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They do. Start asking him about this Jesus, and who is he? Well, he is, he is one God of three gods. That's not the Jesus I know. He is the God. Well, this Jesus was, was created by his Father. That's not the Jesus I know. The Jesus I know is, is eternal, right? Is eternal, and on and on it goes. They use some of that same terminology but they don't mean the same things we do. And when you get down to it, it becomes clear that they're worshiping a different Jesus. But the point is this. The Trinity is essential to the Christian faith. And the Trinity is what sets the Christian faith apart from those cheap counterfeits out there. When closing tonight, we're almost done. We might just take a few minutes, a couple minutes, 
to appreciate the doctrine of the Trinity. There was a, a conference in Byron Center uh, this weekend, and uh, we've often gone to it, but it just didn't work out this year. But the theme of the conference was Delighting in the Trinity. And I like that title because it reminds us that the Trinity is something we should delight in. The Trinity is something that we should find wonderful. It is something that should fill our souls with joy and should cause our love for God to increase. One way I've found to delight in the Trinity in my own life is just to ponder and meditate on the ways in which all three persons of the Trinity are active in our salvation. God the Father, for instance, is the author of salvation. Um, it was he who chose a people for salvation in Christ before the foundation of the world. It was, it was him who by grace alone, right, not because of anything in us, not because we were worthy, not because we were deserving, but, but by grace alone. It was him who by grace alone appointed you and me and all who believe for eternal life. It was God the Father who sent his one and only Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We must understand that our Lord Jesus did not go to the cross uh, in order that he might convince or persuade God the Father to love us. No, Jesus went to the cross precisely because God the Father loves us. God the Father is the author and the initiator of salvation. Our salvation in Christ arises out of the heart of God the Father. God the Son is the accomplisher of salvation. God the Son is the one who's rescued the souls of sinful men and women by his life, his death, and his resurrection. We remember what he said from the cross, don't we? It is finished. And what that means is that the work of redemption is complete. What Jesus means when he says that is, I have done all that the Father has asked me to do. I have paid for the sins of the world. I have secured the salvation of the elect. I have reconciled them to God. I have done all that was required for them to be saved. It is finished. God the Holy Spirit then is, is what we would call the applier of salvation. He is the one who, working through the gospel, causes us to be born again. He is the one who enables us to respond savingly by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And once we do, he is the one who, who unites us with Christ and who causes us to experience in our souls the blessings and the benefits of our union with Christ. This is why those Christ-like virtues that Paul talks about, those Christ-like virtues that we're to display in our lives are called fruit of the Spirit. Because those Christ-like virtues are the result of the Spirit's work in the hearts and the minds and the lives of God's people. So the entire Trinity is at work in our salvation. It's not just God the Son, but it's God the Father working through God the Son and God the Spirit. To accomplish his grand and glorious purposes in the lives of his people. I've always found the doctrine of the Trinity to kind of add an exclamation point to that passage in Romans 8. I think it's Romans 8, 31, where we read, uh, Paul writes, If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, that's a wonderful passage, but then when you start pondering the Trinity and the implications, that whole verse sort of just jumps out of Scripture to me in bold relief, right? If God is for us, God the Father, 
God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the author, the accomplisher, the applier of our salvation, if God is for us, this God, the God revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture, who can be against us? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we praise you tonight for who you are and for what you've done. Father, we praise you for being the author of our salvation, for choosing a people for yourself in Christ before the foundation of the world and in the fullness of time, sending your Son into this world in order that he might save us from our sins. God the Son, we praise you for accomplishing our salvation. We praise you for living the life we have and for dying the death we deserve, for rising again on the third day, for ascending into heaven, for taking your seat at God's right hand, for receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and pouring it out upon your people. And Holy Spirit, we praise you for applying the work of salvation to our hearts. We praise you for opening our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to the truth of Jesus Christ in order that we might respond savingly to him and live for him in this world. Help us to do that well this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand for the parting blessing and then we'll sing our closing song together tonight. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen. Our closing song is number 262. That's holy, holy, holy. 262. And uh, we will sing, we're going to sing verse, <laughs> Blessed Trinity, I was on the wrong page. Uh, we're going to sing verses uh, 1, 3, and 4, Carlene, 1, 3, and 4. Mm -hmm.